Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathaniel Worley, and today I am joined by Larry Mantle, host of KPCC's long-running Air Talk with Larry. Since 1985, Larry Mantle has hosted Air Talk, the longest continuously running daily talk program in the history of Los Angeles radio, airing weekdays 10 a.m. to noon. AirTalk guests are leaders in politics, entertainment, science, health, social debate, history, and the arts, and are coupled with the telephone participation of a sophisticated public radio audience. His awards include the Radio TV News Association of Southern California Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019, the Radio Journalist of the Year from the Los Angeles Press Club in 2012, the Mark Twain Award from the Associated Press in 2013, and the Journalist of the Year from the Society of Professional Journalists in 2010. A fourth-generation Angelino, Larry has interviewed thousands of prominent guests on an extraordinary array of topics. Larry grew up in southwest Los Angeles, Inglewood, and Hollywood. He's a graduate of Hollywood High School and Vanguard University of Southern California. Larry and his wife Kristen are the parents of Desmond, a fellow CMCer. Larry, thank you so much for joining me. Nathaniel, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, uh, I'd like to start by having you just talk a bit about your beginning. Um, like how how did you actually start doing public radio um really like what was the path that that led you to where you are today well public radio when i started was a very boutique thing it was it was not the major media organization or presence that it is now so when i started which was right out of college i was a community volunteer i was in grad school at the time but i always loved radio and i started listening to the little public radio station in pasadena where i lived and while i was going to grad school so i started volunteering and realized how much i loved writing news being on the air talking about it and it really took off from there. I left KPCC and, and went out to Riverside and worked at a CBS network uh, uh, affiliate uh, news talk station, then was hired back by KPCC. Um, and after uh, a couple of years as the news director, I started Air Talk in 1985. But I'd always loved radio. I was an only child. And radio was a companion for me. It, it provided me with all these voices and all the different styles of radio, from talk radio to music programming. And I think I, I connected to them as though they were friends, even though they're people I never met. The intimacy of radio, which I think is a very powerful thing, affected me as a kid growing up. And I feel very fortunate now to be working in a profession where hopefully I'm that person that people listening connect to the same way I connect with the people I listen to. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great answer. I I, I think I definitely have sort of that same feeling, more so with um, like a lot of the younger generations are using like podcasts sure. now as the main Similar thing. Similar concept. Though. Yeah, yeah. There's an intimacy to the audio mm. that there isn't to, to video or to traditional television there you're speaking to a group of people but when you're doing a podcast or or a live radio program like i do there there is that as people listen the feeling that you're right there with them in the moment yeah it feels like like you're really just like sitting in on the conversation and, and talking to one person especially like um over COVID as well, like I was just listening to a ton of podcasts as a way of like, it's it's like, oh yeah, these are people that I'm just like able to listen to their conversation and just made it feel more, I don't know, social, I guess. Yeah, connected to the world. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but I was uh, kind of touching on one of the points you made. Um, the the sort of like intimacy that you get with um, with like a radio personality or or a podcast voice. Um, I think there are some similarities with um, like for people who like watching like Tucker Carlson, something like that, where it's like someone speaking directly to you. Um, and I was curious your thoughts on um, more about like talk radio more generally. Um like how that has sort of like shaped the like political nature of of these sorts of programs. Well, I I think in the case of Tucker Carlson, it it's a little different thing. And I'll use Sean Hannity as an example because Hannity does, of course, a syndicated radio program, and he does his Fox News Channel show every night. It's a different experience listening to him do the radio show than it is watching him doing the Fox Television show. He's talking about the same things. He's interacting with the same types of guests. But there's something about it coming out of the speaker in your car as you're driving or out of your phone as you're listening to an app than there is watching, seeing him. It changes the experience. Now, I, I think for for someone like a Tucker Carlson or, or Sean Hannity, what they've really been able to do is to plug into what are deeply emotional issues for people and to connect to people in a way um, where they feel like they haven't been understood or haven't been listened to. And and that's kind of the power of uh, partisan or, or highly opinionated talk, which is the opposite of what I do, where I don't insert my opinions into the programming. So you can, with me, you can sort of project onto me what, you know, what you, uh, what your own politics are. But in a case with, with um, Tucker Carlson, he's able, what he's really able to do is have listeners connect and feel like, yes, he's saying what I've thought, what I've wanted to say all this time. It's the same thing with people on the left with MSNBC when they watch, uh, you know, one of one of their stars is that feeling, yes, it's about time someone said these things and there is a cathartic experience in watching them. So shifting grounds a little bit, I was wondering, um, because it's been... Uh, 38 years now, I think with, with air talk. Yeah. It's coming um, up on the 38th anniversary. Yeah. I was, I was curious if you have sort of like a ritual or a routine that you've gotten into now doing it, it has it been uh, four or five days a week this entire time. Yeah. It's been five days a week this entire time. So, you know, thousands and thousands of interviews. And uh, I have a routine in terms of a daily routine. I get up at six and, and, um, uh, get to work uh, by 7.15 to meet with the production staff. We finalize what the show is going to be. Um, the producers uh, pursue their booking and nailing down the guests and uh, put together uh, all the written materials that I use for any last-minute study that I didn't do the night before because we didn't necessarily do know what the lead topic was going to be. And then 
I go down to the studio and I start writing and I write uh, the billboards which open each hour of the show because I record those in advance. I um, write the openings to each of the different topic segments that I'm doing and do the program fastest two hours of the day is when I'm on the air. And then afterwards, I record uh, promos for the next day's program, what we're doing, meet again with the producers where we do our planning for the days to come. And then I take home additional study materials and I study at home for the uh, afternoon and into the evening. And I repeat that the next day. That's that's uh, the daily thing. And it, it's really, um, it's a full life commitment. My work, there really is not a lot of delineation between my personal life and the work that I do. I I. I I work uh, just a tremendous amount because I love what I do. I love learning. And it's it's like the fun part of school. <laughs> I'm curious about, like, what sort of, like, study materials are they? Are, are they just about, um, like, does it just vary? Is it about, like, speakers, news stories to cover later in the week? Yeah, it's, it's a variety of different things. So it may be, um, in some cases, it's going to be recent articles from a variety of different sources. If it's a, a you know, polarizing kind of issue from, um, you know, I might be looking at a Wall Street Journal conservative editorial and then looking at, you know, something from The Nation, for example. And so I'm, I'm looking at a variety of, of different sources on something like that. If it's an individual who the reason I'm interviewing is because they're a prominent person as opposed to an issue, then uh, the producers will put together for me all kinds of biographical information. And I'll go through and I'll highlight that, put that together in in both the remarks I'm writing to open the segment, but as well the um, bullet points that I have for the course uh, of the interview. So, it, you know, if I'm interviewing the director of a film, I will have seen the film, I will have looked at the studio's press notes for it, and I will have studied up on the director to know about her, um, what she's done before, for example, and kind of what motivates her work as a filmmaker, all of that to kind of prepare for the questions I'm going to ask her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... For a program like like we have here, Free Food for Thought, um, because we are fully student-run, student-led, all of that, um, often what happens is we don't have as much time to prepare for these interviews as I know, like like what you do, um, as like most like prominent journalists do when doing interviews. Um, do you have tips um, in in when that has to happen when you don't have a lot of time to actually prepare for interviewing someone, what do you look for? What what sort of material are you trying to find? Uh- I use Wikipedia not as a definitive source, but typically prominent people, um, which I know because of the ad speakers here, you're often interviewing as a part of this. Um, they typically maintain their Wikipedia or their people maintain the Wikipedia page pretty rigorously. That's a wonderful shortcut. So if it's a if you're interviewing, let's say a senator, for example, you may have you know several pages worth of Wikipedia content, but you can read that pretty quickly. You can mark it up, find areas in that person's background which are notable, and then do a quick Google News search for that news that person that's being interviewed in the ath and find what's current that they're in the news about. And 
I would just synthesize those things. And that's the kind of thing now, because I do this all the time, I could do that fast. I could I could do that kind of um, prep in in probably half an hour. Now, it might take take longer just because you're that's not your day job, you know, that you're doing. But that's what I would recommend uh, for doing, because you don't have time, have time to, you know, call people who know them and pre-interview them, or you don't have access to these people in advance. I have producers who can do pre-interviews with people, so they give me notes of their pre-interview conversations that I can then decide what I want to follow up and highlight, but I have a sense of what where the guest is going. So, and that's something when I started, because I had no producer, that I didn't have available to me. But that's that's really, and I had no Wikipedia either, because there was no internet at that time. But um, that's what I would do to to quickly get the kind of information um, that would be helpful to doing a, an interview without a lot of prep time. You you bring up um, how when you started you didn't have access to like a producer to help with the pre interviews uh, you don't have a Wikipedia anything like that um, could you talk a bit about the progression that you've seen um, since 1985 um, in the space with with uh, radio generally but also uh, progressing into like online formats as well with like podcasts everything like that just sure like big things you've seen how you've interacted with these changes so when i started in 85 as i said earlier public public radio was really boutique people knew public television but they're like well public radio what is that same shows on public tv they air on radio people didn't really know what npr was commercial radio was what was dominant and there were a lot of local talk shows when i started los angeles had a number of them and it was so lucrative to do commercial talk radio and music radio. Uh, they sold so much advertising that they could pay big salaries to their top talent. Over time, because of consolidation in the radio industry, you got just a few owners of, of stations and they would own these huge, you know, hundreds of, of stations. And they found it was much easier to do syndicated programming that you would air on all of your stations as opposed to paying someone to be your host in Fresno, someone to be your host in Bakersfield or in Sacramento or Los Angeles. And so when they did that to cut costs, public broadcasting was on the ascendancy and the lines met and went in the opposite direction. And public radio has had signature local talk shows for each of the stations over the years. Uh, I have a counterpart in New York City. I have a counterpart in San Francisco, in, in Las Vegas, in San Diego. Each public radio station has a program like mine that is public affairs driven, talks about the news of the day, and, and deals with that. With podcasting, the commercial and public radio broadcasters have both moved into that space and but are trying to compete with Spotify and with all the companies with very deep pockets that are buying up talent. Because podcasting, just like broadcasting, really relies on talent. It people 
will be interested in a topic and download a podcast, but if the host or hosts aren't compelling, they won't stay with that podcast. They'll listen to part of an episode and they're off to something else. There's too much content out there. So the subject matter alone isn't what's going to do it, whether it's true crime or science or any other topic. It's it's got to be that the host is a good enough writer and connector with what the host is saying that people will stay with it. So now we're seeing the challenge in podcasting with all this venture capital that's gone into it because they're looking for hits. It's kind of like TV. It's throw it against a wall, see what's going to hit. Let's do three episodes of this, see if the host is any good and if it catches on. And we're still in the place with podcasting where it's all shaking out. Because when you look at the at the listening of podcasts, there are a few that get that, you know, have mega audiences. And then most of the rest of them, people may download them but don't listen to them or they come and go. That's gonna that's what I'm fascinated to see, because I've lost a number of producers to podcasting companies because they pay more than we can pay a public broadcasting, is how this is gonna shake out and who's gonna be left standing in the podcasting space and how do they cultivate talent? Because it it's still a talent-oriented business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I had course registration today and there were a few classes that I was like, wow, it's a great topic. But then I was like, with the with this teaching? professor, though, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm also curious your your thoughts on like how how radio can continue to um be relevant like i know there are uh, still a lot of opportunities for people to um just like turn on the radio and listen to it in the background but um like when i'm going on road trips stuff like that i'm more likely now to just like download a podcast or something and listen to it yeah or music mm. i'm not listening to live news public affairs driven programming like my program Mm. but i think what i think What's going to happen is the platform is already changing. About a third of the listening hours to my program is on people's phones. It's not on a car radio. It's not. It may be their phone plugged into their their media unit in their car, but they may be out walking the dog. They may, and particularly as people get older, as they. Um, develop long-term relationships or get married or buy a house or as you know start paying taxes all of these things each one kind of raises the odds they're going to listen to news and public affairs oriented programming you know when i was in college i i I didn't really listen to because it wasn't really relevant for me so i think what we're going to see is the programs will still be there because people first there's a hunger for live news People want to know what's happening right now in the world. Secondly, they want to know about issues that have effect as they get older on on their lives. If you have kids, you want to know about educational policy issues and, you know, what should be thinking about where you want to send your kids to school. It's all going to be delivered on, you know, phones, on smart speakers, and whatever comes next in the new generation, because now it's phone and smart speaker are, is the newer technology. But, you know, who knows what that's going to be going forward. And, but I think the content will always be in demand 
to some extent. I really do. I, I could be wrong, but I think a live stream and I think issues-oriented programming will connect with people. You host Film Week now on, on Fridays. Um, have you tried branching out into like other things as well? Like like So you have AirTalk, Film Week. Was there like a third thing you were trying to develop or you did in the past and just didn't work out? We're developing a TV segment right now with two TV critics every week. We're in the process of building it because like with Film Week, it's a big ask of critics to see all the stuff, which can be with a launch, you know, like The Crown has just come out. It's latest season uh, or Yellowstone or, you know, it, it's um, uh, or when, you know, Bridgerton launched or whatever. It's, it requires a critic to not just watch a two hour film, but it may be you know, Netflix, for example, may send you the first six episodes. Well, the critic is one want to make sure that he or she sees all six of those episodes before they opine on it. So it's a heavy lift for a TV critic to come on with us and go through multiple series, particularly when they're new. But we're in the process of cultivating that now. I don't know whether it'll become a standalone program. We are doing this every Thursday as our final couple of segments of Air Talk. So we'll see if we're able to to spin that off in, into something separate. Film Week is very popular for us. It's our highest rated weekend program. So we air it Saturday at noon. And that uh, does extremely well for us. Uh, listeners love it. We, we get um, more than a thousand people out for our annual Oscar preview with all of our film critics on stage. So it's um, it's uh, it's a big deal for us. So if we had another sort of tentpole like TV reviews, that would be great. Music would also be good, but music is so much more diverse in people's interests and um i just because of my age i'm not as conversant with current music i know names i've heard some of the the songs but i don't i don't have the kind of knowledge that i've got of film or even television um that it puts me at a disadvantage given my age so i'm not quite sure how to um to navigate that because i wouldn't only want to be talking you know about artists who were 50 and older that would not not be the most interesting programming shifting a bit to talk about like how students can um get advice to sort of like pursue radio careers or just broadcast media more generally um cmc doesn't have many opportunities i would say in that field um i think we do have like an entertainment track which is great but um and i think we also do have some alumni in in media but it's not like a large presence um but just any advice that you could offer students who might have an interest in going into radio or some other sort of broadcast media. Yeah. It because the industry is changing so much it's hard for me to to give advice because I'm trying to figure out where we're at. I know on the journalism side, for those who really want to go into broadcast journalism, we're only, um, you know, having a very difficult time finding enough people to do the work because you have to have experience to work in a market size like Los Angeles. You know, I was fortunate because KPCC was a little thing when I started. I didn't need that experience. Now you do because we're a much bigger station. So what I would recommend is if someone is interested in working in 
public broadcasting to be looking at smaller markets and and where you could go to get experience. The great thing, though, about podcasting is anyone can do it. So I would urge you to do it. If there's something you love, let's say that you're into a particular genre of music or you're into sports, find ways to get experience by doing your own podcast, listen to the best. The people that really bring their personality have interesting things to say, have some wit about them if it's a subject area that allows humor into it. Listen to the best because through osmosis, you'll pick up some of those things and then find your voice. You don't want to sound like anybody else. Find When I started, I, I felt like I was imitating the people I admired and I had to find my voice. You know, how, how, how do I communicate? What are the things I find funny? How do I look at things maybe differently than other people do? And those are all assets. So get that experience by recording yourself, doing podcasts. You can share it with friends who are going to be honest with you about what they liked and what they didn't. Because it's all a battle to hold people's attention. And the only way to do that is to get that experience because it just takes repetition uh, of doing that. And then when you feel like you've got some talent in that, you could share those recordings with, um, you know, uh, public radio entities if you want to work in radio and see if you can get a job, particularly at a at a smaller station like a, a KVCR, say in San Bernardino, that's close by. And um, and the other thing is, you know, if you find you have a talent with a podcast, there are ways, of course, through social media to promote that. And you may find you don't need to go through a conventional employer that you create your own brand your own entity as as a podcaster and that then you can find a way to make a deal with a platform to to carry you um, it is it is really about cultivating your talent and if you feel like you have a talent for this it just requires that that constant work when i was in college for example i did the play-by-play on our college athletics because I thought I wanted to be a sports announcer. And so I just, I traveled with the team. I spent, I just, whatever I could do to call a game. And I'm sure I was very hit and miss, but I learned so much with all those hours of live calling of sports that I use in interviewing people today. The skills are very transferable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I I wouldn't typically think that it would be transferable, but that's that's a good point. Um, we are running a bit low on time now, um, so just a, a quick final question. Um, I saw I saw a great uh, video with Desmond in it um, earlier today, where uh, I think it was maybe in 20, 2011 or so, um, where he was pranking you on your show. Um, so I was just curious, uh, your show started on April 1st. Um, do you have any other like great April fools or anniversary pranks that, uh, that you come to mind? You know, it's funny. No, sometimes I've had engineers who have, um, played music that's, that was like, uh, sort of birthday gag music at when I didn't even know they knew when my birthday was. Um, uh, Stevie Wonder's "Happy Birthday" I've had played by the engineer coming in, but but uh, um, you know I've had that sort of thing on April Fools. The only one that I recall is the Desmond one, and um, I've been surprised by the engineer. Uh, you know, 
as they say, a few times. But but the April Fools um, with Desmond totally shocked me. And it's funny because he was I, I was putting him to bed one, uh, one night leading up to this, and he said, "Dad, how many listeners do you have for your program?" And I said, "No, oh, about forty thousand." And yet on any given day. And his eyes got really big. Oh, okay. And I didn't know why he asked, because <laughs> he was he wanted to know how many he would be speaking to from his recording. Yeah, yeah, that sounds like Desmond. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I only knew afterwards why he was asking. Mm-hmm. Well. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have here today. Uh, thank you, Larry Mantle, so much for joining me today. And to all of our listeners, be sure to stay hungry. 